And good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. As we are trading seasons and you're going into your cooler weather or somewhat cooler weather, and I'm going into somewhat warmer weather. Yep. It feels like there should be a Simon and Garfunkel song playing in the background. There you know? probably is one like that, <laughs> How's the science fictional universe treating you today? Uh, I, I, I'm looking very much forward to getting back to the science fictional universe and getting out of the academic universe for the summer. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the fortunate things about being in academia is that the awards season and the convention season more or less coincides with the time when I don't have to grade lots of thesis papers, which I'm doing right now. Yeah. And, 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 and thesis papers, I, 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 I sometimes get frustrated and tweet about this, but you have to try to even figure out what some of these students are talking about when they say that children are faced with treats on the Internet. <laughs> what, what word is that supposed to be? <laughs> Or is there something happening out on the internet that we really don't want to know about? Which I'm sure there is. But <laughs> you, you, yeah, you read those things. But but anyway, we have uh, we have well, uh, in, in in a few weeks I'll be probably driving up to Wisconsin for a couple of days. I'll have friends visiting out of town. I'll be going to World Horror this year in Long Island. Yeah. Um, and um, and then you know the usual thing with ReaderCon renovation. Uh, where, um, where we're, uh, we, we might as well acknowledge this up front. We're both nominees. Yeah, did, did we talk about this last week? Um, I don't believe the nominations had been announced uh, at this time okay. last week. Well, then let's just very quickly touch on it, because I want to come back to awards as a subject, because we do it over and over again. Um, but yes, um, congratulations, Gary K. Wolf, on being nominated for the 2011 Hugo Award for Best Related Work for... Bearings reviews nineteen ninety seven to two thousand one. Well done. And, That's awesome. And well, and well done for being. Which how, well, how many nominations is this now for best editor short form? That sounds are like a, no. That's unpleasant. Um, um, four. It's not unpleasant at all. And it's, it's four. <laughs> so it sounds like I'm bragging. That's all. Well, it's <laughs> some. It's it's it, it, it's something that indicates persistence. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, too stupid to I'm stop. Gonna, yeah. I'm going to keep cranking out these damn books until they give me one, uh, which is exactly what my thought is. So I don't. So now we know what it takes to make me go away, does it? Give me a damn Hugo Award, I'll stay home. <laughs> Fair enough. The, <laughs> if I'd only been pitching it that way all along, I'd have a shelf of the things. Um, but also, we have to say that in most all our other friends, of course, and bringing it together nicely. Locus is up for best semi-pro scene, so congratulations to Liza, Kristen, and the team. That's we have. Let me see. Um, who else have we got? Well, people who have been uh, very friendly to us. One of the things that uh, surprised me. I mean, we don't we need to go through everything. Oh Lord, no, no. We'll, we'll come back. I mean, I want to talk about awards in a little bit later, just because there's a lot to talk about yeah. right now about them. Uh, rather than go through all of our friends who are on the Hugo ballot. I mean, it, says, I mean, it sounds really nepotistic, which is also something to talk about. But certainly, congratulations to everybody on the ballot. You can see it on either the Renovation website or on the Locus website or elsewhere. Um, it's a very, very interesting ballot for all sorts of reasons, and I, I look forward to chatting about it in a second. But there's a big story we really have to address for a minute. Today's and, news. I today's news. This morning, uh, the sun rose to the very sad news that uh, Joanna Russ, the science fiction fan and fantasy author and critic, passed away uh, last night, I think it was. I and, believe so, after 
after going into hospice for a day or two, I think. Yeah, she, she, and I believe she suffered a series of strokes and then passed away quite quickly. It so, and I think it's a, it's a massive loss to science fiction. I think. Um, an author. I was of, thinking, yeah, the, you know, it, it's 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 one of those things which is a bit shocking because she's been disabled. Uh, between her uh, uh, arthritic problems, her fibromyalgia, her mm -hmm. chronic fatigue syndrome, and has been uh, out of contact with the entire science fiction community and with the entire feminist community for uh, a couple of decades. Mm. So the degree to which it seems like a shock, it is surprising. I mean, it, you know, she, she's she's been so inaccessible for so long that uh, you would think the um, the, the notion that when she finally passes away is 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 not as stunning as it is. But then um, we talked about her. We spent actually some fair chunks of our earlier podcast yeah, talking did. about her work. I contributed an essay to the collection that Farrah Mendelssohn did only a couple of years ago on uh -huh. Joanna Russ. And uh, Liverpool brought out her collected reviews, um, I think, about the same time or maybe a yeah. year or so before that. So... So when you see this news, and having been reading her fairly recently, yeah. um, and realizing how astonishingly uh, current her fiction still sounds, yeah. uh, that, uh, that that it does feel like somebody very vital has just suddenly disappeared. Well, um, and I think I think that's true. I th well, I do think it's very true. I think there's a couple of reasons for it. I think that, and I, don't, I never knew her personally. I don't know all of her personal history at all. But I think that the um, remove that her illness forced her into from the field gave a sort of, first of all, an impression that she could always be coaxed out of hiding at some point. Even if it was never a realistic thing, there was like, well, she was there, she was alive, she was this, you know, sort of great talent that we weren't sort of seeing anything from. And the other thing is, I think there's been a real rise in awareness of her work in the last five or ten years, particularly the last five to me. Uh, I mean, I read her work back in the 80s uh, when I was at a certain age growing up, when I, you know, because that's when I encountered The Female Man, The Adventures of Alex, those books. Mm -hmm. But I hear uh, friends of mine, younger feminists, people over at Galactic Suburbia, encountering her, her work for the first time, and it does make her suddenly, well, it did make her suddenly seem like a much more um, active part of the field. I was going to say vital, and that's that's the wrong word because she's definitely a vital part of the field, but a much more active part part of the field than she's actually been for a long time. I mean, when the first news of her being unwell came out, I got this uh, mm. email on a mailing list I'm on, and someone said that you know sort of, it, you know, it's a pity, it's a great talent wasted, and I was really taken aback. I thought, really wasted. I know, and really, I think what they meant, and I, w I wouldn't name them because I, I know they meant well and are a great supporter of her work. What they meant was exactly what you've alluded to, which was basically due to illness from about the mid-1980s onwards, she became totally inactive in the field. And so there's this enormous period of time, this 20 or 30 year period of time when she could have been doing all sorts of great work if she'd been physically able to, that we never got to see, which is a great loss to us, I think. I think it's always a, a, a painful loss uh, when someone stops writing at a point when you think they shouldn't have, when, when you know there are phenomenal works out there. Uh, and, and when that period stretches out to uh, uh, more than 20, what, something like 25 years in the case yeah, of Russ, yeah, I guess, yeah. then, then it's, it's a sense not only of the loss of, 
of, of, of her self now, but the, the loss of all those works that she was unable to write and, yeah. and that she eventually lost interest in. The, I've, I've never spoken to her directly. Um, I only heard her voice once at a WizCon a yep. few years ago when Samuel R. Delaney uh, did an audio interview with her. Yeah. And it was, uh, and he was enormously gracious. He has been uh, essentially our contact person with Joanna Russ for the rest of the world for for some years now. Um, and he was he was being extraordinarily sensitive in doing the interview, but the interview at the same time was clearly painful for her, in that she felt she she felt she seemed aware that she had other things that were not written, but she had, yeah. she drifted away from the field. She drifted away from from feminist theory uh, and, and, and criticism and essentially, and I, I have no reason whatsoever that I don't think anybody could criticize this. She was, she had discovered Buffy. Yeah. She was watching the DVDs of Buffy and I thought that's great. <laughs> well, I mean, yes, I, mean, I, don't, I don't want to oversimplify, but I mean, I mean, Charles went through the same thing. I remember being stunned when he fell in love with Buffy. Uh, so I'm not surprised. I mean, there's a lot to like about it and I'm not surprised she did. I, I guess she was engaged. Yeah. The point is she was still engaged. Yes, yeah. You know, she, yeah. she was still Joanna Russ. Her interests were pretty much uh, the interests of a retiree at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and when you when you listen to that, uh, you listen to her very cordial, very sweet, very intelligent, very articulate, and then go back and and read. And everybody comes back to this, and it's a cliche, and it's a cliche that's worth being a cliche, uh, because I was I'm actually old enough to remember reading the Female Man in 1975. Mm-hmm. And there are, and I, I, I I've reread it two or three times since then. There are very few science fiction novels that I reread, but this is one I reread to see if that voice still seems as powerful and as funny. This yeah. is the other thing that's overlooked about her. She can yeah. be very funny. And it's, it, it not only works well when you reread the book now, yeah. but to you, uh, it, it's, this sounds like an old guy, you know, reminiscing. <laughs> it is. You had to be there. <laughs> it's hard to imagine the impact that book had in 1975. Yeah. It was just absolutely, it was, it, it was not just that it was a you know, strong and uncompromising feminist voice, but it was an extremely articulate kind of literary voice of the sort of thing that you still see today in, in, in literary fiction yeah, with, yeah. with four different versions of the same character, basically. And, uh, you know, any one of those would have been um, a novel. God knows yeah. if, if, if a young writer like Joanna Russ came along today with, with, with a novel like that, that'd say, hey, we've got a quartet here. Write one novel for each of these voices <laughs> and we'll sell them over a five year period and and. No, it was just an amazingly condensed, sharp novel, and yeah. she never lost that voice. No, uh, no. I, th- I think one of the things that may have happened to her uh, was that at some point, and I think you're right, I think we're coming out of this now, but there was a period of about 20 years when she was more of an icon than a widely read writer, mm-hmm. uh, where everybody knew the name Joanna Russ, and a lot of people hadn't read much by her. Yeah. Um, and, and when when people eventually come back to start uh, discovering them, like the friends you're talking about, uh, it just is absolutely delightful to think that any portion of that just radical sense of transformation of the field is still there. Uh, mm. Because in 1975, we had seen nothing remotely like that anywhere. Well, I have to say, I don't look around the field today and get that same sense of radical transformation happening. I don't feel that. I mean, that kind of really transforming energy that, that uh, doesn't seem to mm-hmm. appear with any regularity in the field. Uh, and so going back that far, I mean, you know, there, there haven't been that many periods of it since, and we're not in one right now. It seems like a very, um, 
middle 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 sort of level kind of period. Everything's sort of cruising along. The, the business is in trouble. The art's doing fine, but there's nothing really edgy happening right now, which is you know it, an enjoyable time to be to be reading. But you do you do some sometimes occasionally pine for the kind of you know fierce intelligence that uh, she brought to what she was doing. It'd be you know, be nice to see more of that kind of work happening in the field today. I don't know if this is the right era for it, and I, I, I think another argument to be made uh, in defense of the field today, because there are a lot of energetic and, and, yeah. and revolutionary writers, I think to some extent uh, she opened a door, which a lot of people have passed through since then. Sure. You, you, can't, you can't open a door like that every decade. Well, no, um, no. I was, I, was, I was having a discussion. This is, this is going to be a very odd comparison, <laughs> but just in terms of the sense that people had uh, going back in the 60s and 70s, and this is actually going back, well, not quite before my time, but before I was very actively involved in the field, when I talked to people about reading uh, some of the iconic mid-60s Harlan Ellison stories, like yeah. I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, mm -hmm. there was a sense of uh, astonishment that yeah. I didn't know you could do this in the field. And but, but reading those stories now, some of them don't work as well as they did then. Um, I think all of Russ's stories... Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, including The Adventures of Alex, which yep. I reread fairly recently, uh, work remarkably well. There's no sense of being dated in any of these things. That, well, I was going to say, it's funny that you said exactly that. I was going to say that sort of, you know, not to get all sort of, uh, sort of in, in, in the terms of sort of an elegy or anything, but age really hasn't wearied it at all. I mean, my copy of The Adventures of Alex, which I'm holding in my hand, it has a Judith Clute cover on it. Uh, I, I started. Mm -hmm. to, I started to just read it briefly this morning, and it's instantly engaging. It, you know, I could imagine these stories appearing in the pages of fantasy and science fiction today, and getting just as much attention as they did, more attention than they did at the time. You know, her her work remains fascinating and engaging. So, and yep. more, mm, yeah. Other thing. Oh, that was a point I made. I wrote an essay on the adventures of Alex Ferrara's book, and one of the things becomes very apparent in that collection of stories is her very sophisticated level of engagement with the field. Um, and uh, her, her, she, she re wrote some of the most, from my own personal point of view, some of the most, the most influential reviews on me becoming a reviewer okay. were the ones she wrote in fantasy and science fiction. Yeah. Uh, along with a few other people. I mean, Aldous Budras was a reviewer for fantasy yes. and science fiction. Yeah. She'd written critical essays. Uh, uh, she was in a dialogue with Samuel Delaney back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, she knew science fiction very well and respected it in ways that seemed far ahead of her time. She was one mm. of the few people in the 70s uh, to appreciate Fritz Leiber's work in the mm. way we appreciate it today. Yeah. And in between between uh, the late um, Fawford and the Grey Mouser stories and some of the Alex stories, there's an inter inter interpenetration. Absolutely. Fawford... And, and, and Alex shows up in, uh, I think it's Ilmet and Lankmar, one of the last yeah, uh, Fabred yeah. stories. Well, well look, I mean, and they really respected, yeah, they respected and admired each other's work. Uh, Joanna Russ was a huge Lovecraft fan, yeah. it turns out. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Uh, and so, so she, she knew her way around, and, and she constantly, this is one of the things that fascinated me about those reviews, because yeah. um, she, would, she would throw out broadly fascinating theoretical statements about the field in the context of a review, and then you'd, you'd forget whatever book she was reviewing and say, is that, is that right? And I actually looked up one of them. Let me see if I find it, because I looked up a couple of reviews. She said at one point that um, science fiction 
is unique in modern literature in taking work as its central and characteristic concern. And then she just goes on and talks about, isn't that an interesting idea? It is. It's a, I, I actually, to, to, to pull up a second, it actually is a really interesting idea. And it, there's some truth to it, I think. Uh, and, I think and, uh, there's a great, there's a great truth yeah, to it. I mean, well, this is this is some review she wrote in the mid '70s, so she's really talking about classic science fiction. But I think she's absolutely right about that. Um, and the the, the the reason I pull that out is because the kinds of insights that she consistently had in her academic writing, not only about science fiction, but in her book How to Suppress Women's Writing, which I still think every what everyone ought to read. It's not just yeah. about science fiction. Yeah. Um, but it's. Uh, there, there, there's a kind of the, the kind of thing you get in the bell letristic essay, the literary essay, not what we academics do with footnotes and MLA style, mm-hmm. but the kind of things that really <laughs> literate people used to write about um, having mastered a huge amount of uh, literature and then tossing off statements like that, which you just want to write a whole book about. Yeah. And and she never really followed up on that much in her own critical writing, as far as I can tell at all. Yeah. Interesting, fascinating, an enormous, just an enormous loss to the field. Mm, it ah, absolutely is. Yeah. I, re, it's one of the people I regret never having met really badly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We didn't. No, no, and I, I would say to anybody out there listening who has not responded to all the other calls to find an excuse to go and pick up a Joanna Russ book, this should be it. Uh, I, I hope that sort of, although posthumous honors are more for the pe- people who are left than anything else. I hope she gets her her share of them. She belongs in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. She belongs with the uh, World Fantasy Life Achievement winners and, and all these kind of people. So I hope she gets that. Because I think the only career award she ever got was the Pilgrim Award. As for criticism. Yes. Which is very ironic. Yeah. Not, ir- not undeserved at all. No, no. Uh, I mean, the, the, the basis of... I, I, I could get very pedantic here because <laughs> up until the... The scho- there's a lot of scholarship and criticism of science fiction from you know Damon Knight and James mm-hmm. Blish. Your, the Athling Award in uh, uh, Australia is yes. named yeah. after James Blish's alter ego. Uh, but and, and and then there was always a kind of academic thing going on. The, the idea of the science fiction literary essay, which was not a purely fanish essay and not a purely academic essay, but a really intelligent essay, probably began in the 60s and 70s. It probably began with Delaney and Russ. Uh, to some extent with Budras and a few others, yeah. and and eventually became a tradition of its own. Uh, actually, uh, Damien Broderick is, is clearly part of this tradition. Yes, yeah. And I think that really was the period in which, and I think she was instrumental, it's the period in which the ways we talk about science fiction began to come together. You can write a theoretically sophisticated essay on subjunctivity, mm-hmm. uh, which was one of Chip Delaney's famous essays, and then Joanna Russ wrote... Uh, a response to that on subjunctivity. So the whole notion of what the actual voice of science fiction is. Uh, Justine Larbolestier's uh, book, The Battle of the Sexes in Science Fiction, takes its title from a Joanna Russ essay. Yeah. So her influence in criticism is immeasurable, I think. I think you're right. Sad. Uh, I will say this. Given that I have my copy of The Adventures of Alex, and I, I almost was going to read out the opening paragraph because she describes Alex, and Alex is so much like uh, the Grey Mouser. Physically like the mm. Rainmaster, but I realize that, you know, yes, this book does have a, a Judith Clute cover on it, and there's another book on my desk, Gary, that has a Judith Clute cover. Oh, you're collecting Judith Clute covers, who's a wonderful artist, by the way. Mm-hmm. But go ahead. Is, isn't this, the, uh, this, this is what we call in the trade, because, you know, I'm a professional at this, a handy-dandy segue. 
I yes, have in absolutely. my hands a copy of Sightings Reviews 2002 to 2006 by Gary K. Wolf. Hello, Gary. Hey, thank you very much. And uh, <laughs> Roger Robinson, if you're listening to this, why don't you send me a copy? <laughs> because I have not seen this book yet. This, of course, is an oddity for me because it's a book where, barring two pages of it or three pages, I'm, I'm going to guess it's two. Let me three. No, two and a half. Barring two and a half pages. I think I've read it all, Gary. You've edited it all, as far as I can tell. <laughs> I think that's probably almost true. Uh, I'd have to look at the precise dates on things and everything else, but um, it's all but the first, say, three or four columns. Uh, where you reviewed that horrible David Brin book, Killing People. That was a terrible book. Um, mm -hmm. But, yes, congratulations on having the book out. A future Hugo Award nominee. Because um, I think the whole series has been nominated for Hugos, haven't they? I was uh, talking to John Cluth the other day about... Now, Roger Robinson has a tiny press called Beckon, based the name comes from an old uh, convention. Uh, and he's published Clute and, and myself and Paul Kincaid. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, the last five books that he's published have all been Hugo nominees, which has to be some kind of a record for a publisher. I think you're probably right. I, I mean, admittedly, you know, I'm not sufficiently diligent that I'm now going to go off and find out, but I think that it's a pretty, you know, a pretty good bet that that's the case. Um, I'm, I'm, cer I'm certainly it's a, certainly it's the case that no one has ever published five consecutive nonfiction books that are all Hugo nominees. I'm sure that's true. I'm sure. Um, I have to say. Book reviews, not essays. We're talking about the speculative essay that uh, Joanna Russ does. You're not attracted mm -hmm. to that form? Hmm. I'm sorry. What? Uh, you didn't hear what I'm saying? You're not attracted I, uh, to the same form of essay that Russ wrote, or do you feel you do? Oh, I have to shut up! <laughs> oh, of course. Thank you. Well, I, I get I get where we're going here. Uh, <laughs> there were. It's it's interesting in terms of. Uh, uh, Writing reviews as criticism, because I've had, this is a conversation we've had a lot of times. There is a difference between criticism and a review. Yeah, there is. Uh, there is not necessarily difference between academic criticism and a review, because academic criticism generally is written with the assumption that the person reading your essay has read the book in question. Yeah. Writing, writing a review, you have to assume not. But then when you're writing a review about a book that you don't particularly care whether your reader reads or not, you're free to <laughs> speculate. Uh, That's true. That's very true. Hmm. Um, so how, people go to the Beckon website to get this? Yes, they can go to uh, beckon.org. Okay. I should not uh, – and, and, and for people in the United States, it's on Amazon.com. Uh, Mike Walsh of Old Earth Books distributes uh, Beckon books in the okay. United States. And we'll have copies of it, I uh, understand, at ReaderCon and places like okay. that. So, awesome. so you can order it through Amazon, and you can get a copy from uh, from Old Earth Books uh, if you don't want to order all the way from England. Okay. And thank you for giving me the opportunity for that plug. <laughs> well, no, I, I kind of wanted to because we don't talk about nonfiction books very much. And I'm interested. I mean, one thing I want to talk at, at some point about on the podcast, I don't know if we'll do it today, is – a guide to the nonfiction books that people interested in the history of the field should look at. Because I think that's kind of an interesting idea. There's an array of, there's a long history of fine books being written, some of which are very readable, accessible texts that give you an idea mm. of the history of the field. So, you know. And it ties into this other damn podcast that I did when I was at SwanCon, when people were accusing me for things you said. I'm glad they were accusing you. I'm taking no responsibility <laughs> for anything I said. <laughs> You are a bad, evil man, Carrie. Yes, I am. 
there I was sitting innocent. I mean, it turns out that I suddenly became the, t- the token golden age man. Um, uh. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which was fine. And then I had Helen Merrick, who's wonderful and a, and a friend of mine, suddenly saying, uh, saying to me, Gary was saying on your podcast this. And I'm going, I don't know. Ask Gary. I may very well. There, there, there are two responses to that. Mm-hmm. One is I, I may have said something which was intentionally provocative, and I'm glad to get the response. And the other is that I may have said something that was unintentionally provocative, and I'm really sorry to have that response. <laughs> well, you see, I also allow that when it's me speaking, I probably said something unintentionally stupid. <laughs> we, we both we, we, we have to do this. I think uh, every week now there's the, there's the disclaimer that, you know, listeners watch for the point in every podcast when the disclaimer comes up that we say stupid things here occasionally <laughs> and expect to be corrected by you. Oh, I had somebody, uh, I think it was Tansy suggesting that we should do a t-shirt or a, um, like a coffee mug that said, you know, sort of Gary, we're rambling now. And, and I wonder, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm wondering if maybe what it should say is, I think we just said something stupid again, <laughs> but yes, yeah. the back. But, but <laughs> on the front, we're rambling now. On the back, we said something stupid. stupid yeah, yeah. With our handy dandy logo, because we have a handy dandy mm-hmm. logo. So, and, and a new theme music. Anyway, it seems okay, to me. I'm glad. Thanks for that. So there you go. So it seems to me as well that sort of we are because we are not any rambling. We're now getting to that sort of fractured bit where you suddenly realize again, dear listener, that we didn't prepare. Uh, I have a piece of paper in my hand, Gary, and it stands as a signifier for the next part of our conversation. Are you ready? You're just pretending that we actually have parts of these conversations, but go ahead. (laughs) Your piece of paper says... World Fantasy Awards nominations is what it says. It is a nominating Uh ballot for the 2010 World Fantasy Awards. In other words, one's going to be presented at uh, Mm -hmm. San Diego later this year. Where we all get to our say. And what it stands in for is awards in general. Now, we come around this again and again. We love them. We hate them. Whatever else. But there's been a there's a whole batch of awards presented last weekend. You you alluded to, uh, not alluded, you, you referenced the Hugos at the top of the podcast. Oh. And then um, I think last week we might have talked about, I don't remember if we talked about the British Science Fiction Awards. Uh, in fact, I'm sure we didn't, did we? Oh, we, we must. Didn't, no, they, no, we, we had because... You were at uh, you were at SwanCon oh, weekend. We, all this stuff we didn't do. I didn't tell you about no, we SwanCon. Didn't, we didn't get the BSA. We didn't get bit, the, the Ditmars. We didn't really talk about BSFA. Oh, um, good man. Let, ducks. We've got a lot of catching up to do here. Well, let, let's start to do that because I feel like we should just because, yeah, it's the kind of guy I am. First up, and I want to get to the meaning of awards after this. First up was the British Science Fiction Association Awards. And mm-hmm. there were four winners. I'm going to start down in the artwork category. This went to the cover of uh, Zoo City by uh, Lauren Bukas, a book called, uh, by artwork by someone called Joey Hi-Fi, and congratulations to them. Mm-hmm. In the nonfiction category, our friend Paul Kincaid, a fine and intelligent critic, won the nonfiction mm-hmm. award for his essay, Blogging the Hugo's Decline, which can we just say for a start, Paul, not the most optimistic-sounding title, really, is it? Mm-hmm. Decline, <laughs> no. I mean, really, you could have, Blogging the Hugo's might get better, would at least have been something more friendlier but a very odd category in which we were fortunate enough and i know grateful to be nominated but Mm -hmm. very happy to see paul take home the award 
Then in short fiction, uh, Aliette de Baudard uh, won for a short story, The Shipmaker, which was published in Interzone. Congratulations mm -hmm. to her. Excellent. And then in what I think is the most interesting of these results, even though they're all interesting, Ian MacDonald, possibly, bear with me on this, possibly the best science fiction novelist working at the moment, won for The Dervish House. Which is a sort of thing that's difficult to argue with. Um, well, he was up against The Wind-Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi, Zoo City by Lauren Bucus, The Restoration Game by Ken McLeod, and Lightborn by Tricia Sullivan. I haven't read all of those books by any means, but The Dervish House is an extraordinary achievement. Mm -hmm. So, that was those. Do you have anything to say about the BSFAs? I'm not. I, I will say this about the, uh, the category we were nominated in, because I was thinking about this, and we'll say this again when we come to the Itmars. Um, when you don't win an award, it's all, it, it, it's it's really almost as good if a good friend does or if yes. somebody whose work you respect wins. Yeah. And Paul Paul was up for the Hugo for um, what we talk about when we talk about science fiction, if I'm mm -hmm. not mistaken. Mm -hmm. He's a first-rate critic. He is. Uh, his work is elegantly written, which is not yep. something you can say about all critics. <laughs> and, uh, and and I'm delighted that, uh, that he received that award. I'm very delighted that McDonald received that award because um, when we get to the Hugos, uh, where that novel is also being listed, I'm you're looking at a different dynamic of voting. You are uh, very much very interesting to see what happens. It is okay. We'll we'll go up to the Philip K. Dick Award, and I, and uh, just for those who are unfamiliar with the PKD, it's for the best uh, original science fiction book published originally in paperback during you know the previous year, and over time they've had to sort of skew the concept paperback to include trade paperbacks because there are fewer mass market paperbacks being published, and it went to a book published by Pyre, uh, run by my good friend and collaborator Lou Anders, uh, The Strange Affair of Spring Hill Jack by Mark Hodder. Uh, mm -hmm. And this actually, I think, highlights right away one of the true values of awards. I've not read Mark Hodder's book, and I'm going to make a little guess that you've not either. I've not either. No. Awesome. It won the Philip K. Dick Award. It probably is worth having a bit of a look. You know? Uh, and Mark Hodder's, yeah, and I'm familiar with Mark Hodder's name and with yeah. his work. And this is one which I... Uh, I saw the reviews when it came out. I thought this sounds really interesting. It's a classic sort of bit of folklore, which has not been ex overexploited, mm. uh, and it's it's one that I definitely want to read. You you mentioned the the, the PK Dick Awards now including uh, trade papers, yeah. which does alter the nature of the of, of the award somewhat. I mean, the, the original the original idea behind the award was that the Dick published so many uh, yep. uh, major novels as Ace Originals. He uh, the story is going around that all of his, you know, early novels were published in mass market paper, which is not true because Time Out of Joint came out in the hardcover. Sure, example. sure. But by and large, the idea was that uh, because science fiction was essentially, I may be misrepresenting this if the people who invented the Philip K. Dick Award want to correct me for free, that, that so much science fiction had been consigned to mass market paperbacks, yeah, yeah. Philip K. Dick became the poster child mass market books should be looked at. Yeah. Now what you're getting are a lot of books, including, for example, Daryl Gregory's new novel, he's mm -hmm, a, mm -hmm. arguably a major new writer, uh, appearing as a trade paperback original. Trade yes. paperbacks are now looking more like hardcovers did 20 years ago than like yeah. mass market paperbacks. Yes. Yeah. I, I think that's absolutely true. I think it's absolutely true. Uh, and I think that um, if, they do, if they weren't to include the trade paperbacks, it would become... Almost an unviable award, which is on, would be unfortunate. So, anyway, mm -hmm. congratulations to Mark Hodder and to, to Lou, Lou Andrews. We now come to the Sunday evening orgy of awards. 
which yeah. we presented at SwanCon. I had a lot. I no, to be honest, I was a bit sick and a bit other things. So I had, lots of, so I had quite a good time at SwanCon, Gary, uh, and I think everybody else had a thoroughly awesome time. Uh, so as an aside, congratulations to Elisa Krasenstein and her convention committee for running a fantastic commit convention. I'll tell you how I describe it. It was like a mini world fantasy. That's how good it was. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it was. It was really good. Great hotel, great turnout, intelligent panels. They put up with me, which is remarkable. I, did, I tell you, I did more panels, Gary, at that convention than I've done in the last five years. It was ridiculous. I did like 10 of them or something. So. Well, it also sounds like, I mean, I was, um, as I was looking at tweets. I was uh, watching the web and so forth. And it's, it, it sounds like an absolutely wonderful convention. Probably is the most important and most enjoyable continent-wide convention that people from other continents can't easily get to. Ooh. Huh. That's probably true. Um, I mean, I, you, you're, you're European awards, people from England can yeah, pop over yeah, to European sure. awards. Uh, people from the States can pop over. Uh, you, I, I know you had Alan Dadlow there, but I'm gathering you um, you had relatively few visitors from the UK or Canada or uh, the United States at that con, and I would love to have been there. We would have loved you to have been here, too. I would have loved you to have been here. But I have to tell you that we, I think we had none, not relatively few. You know, mm-hmm. um, you don't usually get people flying over for the Australian National Science Fiction Convention. And the other thing that's unusual about it is the length of the convention. I mean, it's as long as Worldcon. It runs for five days. That's uh, astonishing. Over the Easter con- So you can imagine the daunting task of running a convention like that, mm-hmm. never mind attending one. You end up that tired. I mean... The, the amount of con crud you get after the convention, everybody's down with the flu and exhausted because they've been drinking and talking and socializing in a hotel for five days. So it's just a huge thing. Um, we had people fly in for Thailand for it, um, from all around the country. We brought in Justina Robson, who was lovely. Brought in uh, Alan Datlow, who we, is a friend of ours and is wonderful. So all in all, it was a great event. There was only, only one or two minor how many, things. How many, how, many people, how many people attend the Swan Con? Um... I, 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 well, when it's not the NatCon, anywhere from two to four hundred, I would say, depending on how well it's been promoted. And this one, I'm yeah, going to guess. I have, the, sorry, I'm going to say that's that's really a size that I rather enjoy. Yeah, it is. When your friends are there, it's a great con. It really is. Mm-hmm. And when it's the NatCon, that can be really good too. This was the 50th Australian uh, National Science Fiction Convention and the 30, 36th SwanCon, and my 25th SwanCon actually. So, mm-hmm. a fine convention. Now, on the and our s- friends Elisa and Tansy came away with they cleaned up. They cleaned up. They cleaned up. They really did. Uh, and I have to tell you, they cleaned up for a couple of reasons. They cleaned up because, damn, they work hard. You know, really. I mean, I, I see what Elisa does, and I hear what Tansy does in the background. Uh, you know, she should makes reference to it. So they they work like crazy. And they're fantastic communicators. I mean, their podcast is terrific. They blog, they tweet, and they don't do it in that bad way where you don't want to be involved. They do it in a very open and in, in engaging, involving way. So I think they, when they, you know, when they cleaned up, they cleaned up based on merit, which is the best kind of thing to see happen. It really is. And I go back to the point I was making about uh, Paul Kincaid. When you, you know, when 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 they win for their podcast, I think they won two awards for their podcast. If uh, I'm not uh, mistaken. Yeah, they did. And it's it feels. In a strange way, I think I felt a little validated like that since I, I okay, this is I'm going to get in serious trouble for this, but I think there's podcast is like the stepmom of ours. 
Fair enough. No, no, that can be the, the, what the or, or the, the fairy godmother of our podcast. Fairy it? godmother. That's even better. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. We wouldn't be doing what we're doing the way we're doing it. Let's blame them for everything we do. On, as a matter of fact, <laughs> I'm laughing. I really am. But no. Okay. So Galactic Suburbia, the fairy godmother of our podcast, did very well. Do we want to go through yes. all the categories, or should we should just sort of summarize? Well, I think you should go through the categories because. There are a number of names on uh, on the Australian ballots that are not going to be widely known in the okay, United States. Okay, here we go. The first major, well, the first set of awards were the West Australian Science Fiction Awards. These are the Tin Ducks, and they're just voted by SwanCon members. The mm. fan production, which Cood Street was up for, uh, and was almost exclusively podcasts. Interestingly, says a lot about fan activity in West Australia, which is quite an isolated place. Went to Galactic Suburbia. Uh, so Elisa, Alex, and Tansy got to run up and get these really cool-looking stat- you know, statues that we didn't get. Um, and everybody was delighted. It was it was wonderful. That was great. Then came the, the best fan written work, and that went to Tahani Wesley for her reviews at Asif. Now, Asif is something that Elisa and her friends set up originally, and Tahani and Elisa have worked together quite a lot, and they're part of the 12th Planet whole environment. So mm-hmm. that was great. Best fan artist... Uh, was a tie for the piece that I don't know, a piece called Fallen Angel by Christina Lorenz, and a piece by Amanda Rainey, uh, who did the logo for SwanCon 36, the NatCon. Amanda is the graphic designer uh, for all of 12th Planet's books and has done some fantastic work for them, has made the books look really good, I have to say. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, they launched a couple of new books at the, uh, over the weekend, which we, we have to look at. Uh, I think... Um, Adrienne is interview is reviewing one of them in a coming issue, uh, a book called Love and Roman Punk by Tansy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the best professional production, which is one of those sort of neat catch-all categories, went to Elisa Krasnstein's anthology Sprawl, uh, which you may have seen a copy of, I think. Uh, Sp- I've not, actually. I've not okay. seen it yet. Oh, wow. Okay. Sprawl came out late, mid, middle, mid to late last year and is an Australian urban suburban fantasy anthology i mean the idea was imagine given mm-hmm. the how, how urban suburban uh, a culture australia is what kind of things could happen in a fantastic way within the suburbs really well done well edited book well put together book um i liked it a lot and i think it was the best anthology published in australia last year pretty much and well deserved the award and congratulations then to elisa yep the professional artwork went to amanda rainey for the cover to sprawl um, and well done to her. I think you know she's done some fine work. Best short story was Pete Kemschel for Signature Walk, a story that I don't recall. And probably the one work you would have heard on the on, uh, from the Tin Ducks was heard of was uh, Juliet Marillier's Seer of Seven Waters. It was published by Rock, which won for best long form work. Mm-hmm. So congratulations to them. That was awesome. They actually the, the award ceremony is so long they actually gave us some time off. We got a, we got a bathroom break. That's how long it was, Gary. Oh my goodness. I know. They then rolled into the the Dittmars, and much as the Hugos have a Dittmar or a Hugo that's not a Hugo in the Campbell Award, the um, the William Athling Jr. Award for criticism or review, which you mentioned earlier in the podcast, is presented at that convention, and it went to Tansy Rand Roberts, which was Yay. terrific for her essay on Doctor Who on her website, which was great. Uh, there were a few other uh, nominees, including Damien Broderick, who you'd have heard of, who had, but Tansy made a very worthy nominee. They then went on to Best New Talent, and the, that went to Thorea Dyer. Well, I, want, I, want, I want to just make a parenthetical notion about, uh, just out, out of pure personal self-interest, the idea of having any sort of a critical award uh, in, in, in a ceremony like this is enlightened. <laughs> I have to say, as someone who's won one, it's very nice. 
Mm-hmm. It really is. It's, it's, it's a lovely thing to get that kind of work recognized. Uh, it's too often overlooked. And the thing is that criticism and review work, it, it's probably shattered more that as, a, as a place to get published than even short fiction has. You know, it shows up in so many odd places now, in small mm-hmm. critical magazines, on blogs, anywhere. And it, it, it's all worthy of attention. So, so then the best new talent was Thorea Dyer who's uh, worked a lot with 12th Planet and a few other publishers around the country, so that was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, best Achievement, Nancy. I've got to tell you, Best Achievement, I've heard they may be getting rid of this category only because it could be like anything, you know? But you'll be shocked to know that Best Achievement went to Elisa Krasnerstein, Catherine Lingi, Rachel Hulkner, Alex Pierce, Tansy Rand Roberts, and Tahani Wesley for Snapshot 2010, which was an online interview server they did of the whole state of the Australian science fiction field where in like three days they interviewed 75 people or something to talk about what they're doing I know it's a terrific thing and they did a great job so in amongst a bunch of other very very worthy nominees they did really well then comes the one that we've talked about before that we that we like the best fan publication in any medium which Mm -hmm. what which is in fact looking at it uh one two it's five podcasts and a website so and that went to Galactic Suburbia again. I won't go through all the names, uh, which was very well deserved. I was very pleased to see that. Absolutely. And then uh, Best Fan Artist went to Amanda Rainey again, which was awesome. Uh, Alex Pierce from uh, Galactic Suburbia won Best Fan Writer for her reviews at ASIF, Australian Speculative Fiction in Focus. Best Artwork, and you'll be shocked at this, so hold on to your seat, went to The Lost Thing by Andrew Ruhrman and Sean Tan. Interesting as phrases, artwork, I think everybody was a little bit sort of, because it's all cover art and that kind of thing, and then there's this short film. Mm-hmm. But Sean Tan uh, won, which was great. The Dittmar for Best Collected Work, and again, speaking to someone who's won it in the past, uh, went to Sprawl for, by Lisa Krasnerstein. And there were some good books, there were some good books on the ballot, and hers was a very worthy winner, I think, for anyone who's read the books closely. There was a tie for Best Short Story. Cat Sparks uh, was up for All the Love in the World from Sprawl. And Kirsten McDermott from The Writer and the Critic was up for a story called She Said from Scenes from the Second Story. The Best New Talent winner, Thorea Dyer, won the Best Novella category for the company articles of Edward Teach. And after 15 years of tireless work, and I, put, I cannot put it any other way, of balancing motherhood and everything else, Tansy Rainer Roberts won the Best Novel for Power and Majesty. So... Yay, all of them. Congratulations to all of them, and I hope those, I hope a lot of these become more widely available than they are. I mean, one of the things that, um, mm. who, who, who published Tansy's novel, by the way? HarperCollins. HarperCollins, excellent. Yeah. So that is, but that was HarperCollins Australia. Yes, 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 sorry. Okay. So um, the question is, how do we get, how do we in the rest of the world, outside of the websites, which we can access, uh, get to see some of these. I mean, Twelfth Planet is one of the more interesting new presses in the world. I think. I, I have uh, to. S- yeah. We saw a couple of their books when I was reading for the World Fantasy, where they're very well done, well designed, and they're 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 good. But they're not widely distributed, if I'm not mistaken, outside Australia. I think right now that you know, really your best bet is um, going online. It really is. On for- I mean, I'd love it to say they're going to be you know, in all sorts of bookstores and you could go here and there, but f- for all the Twelfth Planet press. Stuff. In fact, for any of the small press stuff on the ballot, and there's a, quite an oh. array of small press stuff, as you could imagine these days, from small press publishers like Ticonderoga and like Eniot, who are now out of business but still have books available to sell, Brimstone, mm-hmm. Fablecroft, these kind of places. 
their websites are the place to go. Go to the Locust website, get the ballot, because you or get you know, get the the awards list, and then you'll be able to go across. The novel list, fortunately, are all fairly w- w- available, even though some of them are only available here in Australia. I mean, of the right. five novels, uh, I think two are red, three are readily available in the states, and the other two you'd need to get online from the um, from, from from the thing. I, I will say, unfortunately, and maybe if we have time, we'll come back to it. I don't know. Unfortunately. As sometimes happens, the Australian science fiction community, or a certain portion of it, fell into an internecine, internecine squabbling after these results came out. Afterwards, really? Yes, 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 yes. Um, and p- part of me wants to just sort of put it in the context it deserves and ignore it completely because I felt the winners were quite deserving. But it seems to be a, a traditional response. Everybody likes to second-guess results. And when you get a particular group of people winning, it, it, it all goes a little bit haywire. But it was I can great, understand that. Yeah, it was. A, uh, yeah, I was going to say one of the things uh, that I uh, I miss, I guess, because uh, before, well, even before and and sometimes for some time after I started reviewing Prolocus, I didn't know anything about fan uh, or or even professional internecine squabbles mm-hmm. like that. And I thought this is just wonderful information. And the more I know about uh, how sausage is made, the, the, the less glamorous the awards seem. I, I'm thinking, these are just absolutely wonderful. Um, if, if something absolutely outrageously stupid gets an award, yeah. which has happened, it has. Uh, and we probably could both name, then, then I get really angry because I think, okay, these people are not reading the same genre I'm reading, or certainly no. not reading in the same That's way. True. I am. That's true. Uh, but, but when you have works that you recognize as quality work and the yeah. uh the, the ones i know from you know I, I certainly know galactic suburbia the ones the, the ones i knew from the bsfa awards um seem to me to be reasonable awards yes oh, no i think that no i'm familiar with the field here and i felt the awards were all quite reason you know were, were understandable and everything else i mean yeah uh and, and also, I mean, and this happens even at the Hugo level and, and wherever else. And the Hugos, just, I mean, they had the biggest number of nominations in their history, which is just over a 1,000. Um, mm-hmm. It's still a fairly small voting pool. So it's easy for this sort of thing to happen where you get a lot of people voting. You, know, you get a, 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 a group of people recognize excellence and vote for it. And then it appears like there's been a lot of people voting in one particular way when really it's just a small number of people involved. You need, you know, to- I, yeah, I think it, it, when you say over a thousand Hugo ballots, for example, that's a total number of ballots. That's not the number of votes in any particular yeah. category. Yeah. I mean, uh, we're, cat- we're dancing all over here, but, but can I give you an example? There's mm-hmm. one thing about the Hugo ballot that I was shocked about, right? Not much that I'm shocked about, but I was shocked. And that was the category that I'm in. The category that I'm in has been stable for three years. Same nominees each year, right? This year it changed, as you might be aware. And Ellen Datlow, one of the premier editors in the field and a thoroughly deserving nominee who won the uh, Hugo for Best Editor short form, in fact, is the you know, one in 2009 and 2010, I think it was, or 2008 and 2009. Mm-hmm. That's right, 2008 and 2009. Uh, did not make the ballot. And I was stunned. Yeah. I was stunned. And then I began to think about it. I thought, well, okay, let, let's have a look at how this stuff works. So I went and I went back to last year's Hugo nominations, which are, of course, published uh, along with the awards results. And I looked at the raw number of nominating votes because it's not a Australia, what they call an Australian system uh, or a preferential system for the nominations. They're just first past the post. Yes. And I looked and Ellen got, came third in the nominations, but one, right? 
if uh-huh. Ellen had ha- had 20 fewer nominating ballots than she did, she would not have made the ballot. Just 20. Really? Yeah. And in fact, if you were to go down the ballot, I think the fifth placed person, if they'd had three fewer ballot uh, nominating things, they would not have made the ballot either. So some the actual raw numbers, I mean, it changes when you get into voting and all kinds of things. Um, and I think the attitude that people bring to it changes when they, they vote. Um, the numbers are very small. So these things are quite, I do not want to say fickle, it's not the word I mean, I'm looking for like fragile, they're, they, 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 they turn on a very small number, really, you know. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so I, mean, I, mean, I think the fan category last year, you, you could get onto that ba- the ballot for best fanzine for, I, I seem to recall, though I may be wrong, with 25 or 30 ballots or nominations all up. I'm not surprised at all. You know, so these things are fickle. And I think what it tells us is, I mean, I love awards just to death for reasons if we can't have time, we'll talk about in a minute. But what's really important to remember about it is the, in some ways, the results aren't important. In fact, in some ways, the individual nominees aren't important. This is about the annual cycle of celebration and recognition that helps build the community we're part of. That's the key value to me about about awards. It's about that annual celebration where we can come together, look at our field, think about it, recognize it, uh, and also build up some co- some common discussion grounds for it. Uh, well, this is a point. Uh, yeah, it's a point that you and I we've been both contributing to this uh, locus. Yeah, yeah. Roundtable blog, which is edited by Karen Burnham and is now, I think, two of three parts, maybe all three parts have yeah. been up. Exactly the same point we were making there. The second point I think is that if you look at it from the point of view of somebody who's, who's been nominated, which is just an enormous thrill, it is, it is. Uh, no matter what, uh, there's also the uh, perspective of looking at it as a reader. And you just mentioned in, in, in listing all the Australian awards, a yeah. lot of writers and works I didn't know. No. We both talked about Mark Hodder. We need to look at that. Yeah. So when you look at these nominations, you think, uh, okay, here are things that some some number of people, and you're right, it may not be more than 20 or 30 or 40 or 50, have thought it was worth looking at. Yeah. Um, well, that's gratifying from my point of view as a reader because it means I should be looking at that Mark Hodder book. Yeah. It's certainly my point of view as a nominee because I think five or six more people are going to look at that book. Yeah. Um, and and, and there, are, there are always you know, odd disappointments because a lot of this has to do with visibility. Who oh, is sure. visible to, oh, yeah, sure. to whom? I mean, the, the, the short-form awards... Um, you know, for example, the dramatic presentation short films. Now, my feeling generally is that dramatic presentation is one of the least meaningful categories in various ways, simply yeah. because if we're going to nominate Steven Spielberg, it's not as though he's going to skip breakfast that morning because we've nominated him. <laughs> no, no. Uh, but um, uh, it, it's, it's clear that uh, th- uh, the uh, Hugo nominations for Best Dramatic Presentation Three of them are Doctor Who episodes. Yeah. Uh, and um, and the lost thing is there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but very few people, this is a conversation I've had with Cheryl, our friend Cheryl, yeah. and with uh, my friend Nnedi Okorafor. Uh, an excellent Kenyan science fiction film is yeah. not on this list. No. Now, is it, uh, and, and, and the reason it's not on this list is that almost nobody has seen it. Yeah. But actually it was released in Kenya probably in, if I'm not mistaken, it was shown at a Kenyan film festival probably in 2009. Yeah. Um, uh, was available at some very limited showings at yeah. individual meetings yeah. in the United States in 2010. Um, 
it's worth a nomination. It really is. It's a, it's a stunning short film by uh, a, a young Kenyan filmmaker who's a friend of Nettie's. I think her name is Wahuri. Um, and at some point, if that film gets the exposure it deserves, it'll show up on the Hugo ballot. But because I know about that film in particular, yeah. it makes me wonder about all the things of that course. haven't been seen by the by the crucial minimum number of people to, uh, to think about nominating. Yeah. Now, the film is called Pumzi, by the way, and you yeah. can look at a preview of it online. And I can also say, if, if you go over to uh, Bad Film Diaries, you can listen to Grant Watson talking about the film. He's an Australian podcaster, a friend of ours, and he raved about it. He, he in fact, was trying to campaign to get it onto the Hugo ballot. He, he, he's that impressed with it. I was going to say, I, I think, yeah, continue. It, it's, it's very impressive, but the problem is that that's what, that's what I talk about visibility. Yeah. Uh, the quality of the film is not the issue. I think anybody who's seen the film yeah, will be impressed. I agree. I agree. People will recognize that there are strong influences of THX 1138 in it, but it's it's an African-based African view of uh, of a kind of future dystopia, which is very well thought out. Um, it, the question is not whether it deserves a Hugo nomination. The question is whether any uh, there's going to be any point when enough people who are possible Hugo voters have an opportunity to see it. Yes. And uh, I. I, I completely second the notion that it really needs to be uh, more widely seen. Yeah. And at some point, it will be. By the way, that same director is the one who I believe has the option on Nettie's novel, Who Fears Death. I believe so, which is very exciting. Which is very exciting. At this point, I'm going to bring in a question from a listener. Because, Excellent. just before we started, I tweeted and said, what should we talk about? Uh -huh. And Miss A. Kresnestein of Dianella, uh, West Australia, writes, What do awards mean? Oh, what a wonderful question! <laughs> um, because because this is, uh, shall we go on for another hour now? Well, um, look, look, let, look, I don't want to make it this just the awards podcast that probably is about to be that, but uh, or in fact already is that, frankly. But I think it's kind of worth just touching on it because there has been a bit of kerfuffle here at home, and every time mm -hmm. awards are presented, there is somebody somewhere who's going to be dissatisfied with the outcome. Uh, and so it's it's perhaps worth touching on what at least we think an award means. When when you you're nominated for an award, when you win an award, what the act of giving awards means, all that kind of thing. So what's your take? I was at a panel at uh, yeah. Well, no, was, uh, one of the things we were talking about at uh, a panel at the International Conference on the Fantastic, which Jim James Patrick Kelly had organized, and he and, and John Kessel were on it, and we really began focusing on, on their anthologies. Awards are a little bit like, like anthologies, um, because they were talking about, Kessel and Kelly have done a series of anthologies for Tachyon that have dealt with, uh, mm -hmm. with post-cyberpunk fiction, with sort of mainstream, the secret history of science fiction. They're doing a collection now on Kafka-influenced stories, and, and they, were, they were agonizing as conscientious people will, or did, did we get the right stories? Mm. And it occurred to me that, well, and, and, and you will appreciate this as well, that one of the things that characterizes the science fiction field is that uh, an anthology, a year's best anthology, a slipstream anthology, whatever it is, is in the context of people like us, by definition, an anthology is a collection of the wrong stories. <laughs> okay. Everybody's going to second guess what you've done. Of course, the, yeah. if, if anybody, of course they do. Yeah. I think, I think, you can make the same statement about awards. If you talk to enough people, every award ceremony is a ceremony for honoring the wrong book. <laughs> uh, okay. For somebody. Mm -hmm. There's somebody who's going to be outraged by it. 
my, 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 my more serious reaction is that when you say, what do awards mean? What do they mean to the nominee? What do they mean to the general reader? What do they mean to the uh, less widely known but, uh, but active group of fans and activists within the field who believe that uh, you know, certain people ought to be recognized? Um, and I, I think you almost have to answer that question in three different ways. Sure. Uh, it's, uh, you and I have both said this. It's just really exciting to get nominated. It is. Way. It's wonderful. And it's wonderful, and you bring them home, and, and you try to explain, as I've said before on this podcast, you try to explain why this yes. terrifying bust of H.P. Lovecraft <laughs> actually represents an honor in the field. And I'm showing this to my university president, and he's saying, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so so, 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 so there, there's that thrill. Uh, there's the thrill of seeing your friends win. Yes, uh, which very much. Is exciting. Um, from a reader's point of view, I'm thinking, okay, this is a list of books that enough people have read that I ought to be ta- paying attention to them. Mm-hmm. And I know a number of people who simply use awards nominating ballots as reading lists. Um, sure, I think that's true. Uh, I, I've also heard people complain about that very fact. And, you know, you know they, they, they grumble, they'll say things like, well, you know, if you look at, say, this year's Hugo nominees, just to sort of... Uh, as, as an example, mm. I don't know if that's what I would put forward as a potential reading list to show people the best in our field in 2010, you know, for 2010. I think such and such should have been there. Now, I've got two I responses. Agree. I, I, look, I agree with them, too, ex- except to the mm. point where I'd say the value of that list is either that you read some of it and you disagree with it or you disagree with it from the outset and you, re- you, know, you, you champion something else. You know, you turn around and say best novel – for the Hugos, for example, Zoo City by Lauren Bucus didn't make that list, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it won the Arthur C. Clarke Award for Best Novel. I had, you know, some fictional line, not me, but you know, if you were to say, I read it, I think it's the best book of the year, and you should read it too. Well, being able to say that is important. It would be lovely if that book had been nominated, but there only can be mm-hmm. a limited number of nominees. Um, so, you know, the, the awards process does create that dialogue, but I mean, to get kind of well, uh, yeah, continue. I think to some extent we also have to make a distinction between awards that are popular vote awards and awards that are you judged do. awards. The World Fantasy Awards are a little bit different. You mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that yeah. the nominating ballot out is out for World Fantasy Awards. That's going to put two candidates in each category. Yes. I, uh, yeah. it's, it's not going. It's not. And and then you have the judges. Um, the British Fantasy Awards, uh, British Science Fiction Awards, rather. British Fantasy Awards are completely different. Yeah. British Science Fiction Association Awards. Uh, are popularly voted within a limited voting block, except for some awards. As my understanding is that the nonfiction award has been judged uh, more often than not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, if you have a group of judges that uh, seem to be knowledgeable and somebody you respect, uh, then then you think, okay, these are serious people whose biases I know, whose 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 outlooks I know. Sure. And they've chosen these books. And at that point, you think, if I respect these judges, I'm going to look at these books. With a popular vote, you're always up against the fact that a very popular writer is going to get nominated. Yeah, well, yeah, um, yeah. There are write- writers with enormous fan bases sure, sure. that uh, you know, characteristically will get nominated year after year. And you take that into consideration. Mm-hmm. That's, that's somebody who really, to some extent, has some awareness of what's going on in the field. Now, I have friends who read very little science fiction. Yeah. Who, uh, there are lots of people out there who read science fiction until they were 19 or 20, and then they became accountants or whatever. And... They will look at the Hugo ballot and say, "Okay, I'll go back and dip into science fiction. And I'll just look at what won this year's Hugo award." Yeah, and yeah. that's all they read for that sure, year. Sure, sure. I'm going to go back to Elisa's question more directly at this point and say, "This is what I think an award means. It doesn't. I mean, whatever you, you call it, 
it doesn't mean best because best is a subjective assessment. Mm-hmm. So really, let's set that aside. I mean, I've seen some very sophomoric discussions on that subject this week, but it's really a furphy. What it means is a group of people have said a particular set of works are worth discussing and thinking about. And it's an honor to have your work put in that that, that, that area, yes, or that, in that context. Uh, but it's not an aspersion to not be in that context. And I'd also say that the physical act of winning it really, in many ways, means a lot less than the nomination. Because the nomination, I mean, yes, it's, you know, you'll be remembered, your work will be talked about, and that's great. It's wonderful. And speaking of someone who's, been, as you have, been on both sides of this uh, equation, I've won them, mm-hmm. I've lost them, what kind of thing. Um, it's fantastic to win, but, you know, the key thing is to be nominated because you're talked about. To win an award is nice, but awards mean these are things the community thinks you should pay attention to. All the rest of it is just kind of set decoration. Um, you know, it's like at, at, at the Hugo's this year, you know, they're saying, you know, you should pay attention to Cryoburn by Lois Bourgeois. You should pay attention to Feed mm-hmm. by M- Mira Grant, 100,000 Kingdoms by Nora Jemison, The Dervish House by Ian McDonald, and Co- Connie Willis's Blackout and All Clear. And if you look at, and this is something that I try to do, if you look at it at a, at a, at a meta level, Gary, uh, and look across the awards, you can turn and say, well, hang on, um, Ian McDonald won the uh, BSFA for Best Novel, and he's up for the Hugo, and I think he may even be, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm probably wrong now, up for the Nebula, I think, is he up for the Nebula? I think he is. I believe so, yeah. Um, so, so that to me says, here's something that now a cross-section of judges and uh, popular voters have thought is a work of interest. If I w- had not already read, oh, he's not up. I take that back. Okay, but um, oh, look at the hundred. Okay, the hundred thousand kingdoms by Nora Jemison. Up for the Nebula. Up for the Hugo. Two completely different populations saying this work is w- worth paying attention to. Absolutely. That makes it even more interesting. So you know. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, uh, and, and that's looking at, at it as I said from both perspectives, from that of being a nominee. Uh, I. Uh, think that you and I have both been uh, nominated in categories where we know we know we're not going to win and we oh, know sure. why we're not going to win. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, 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 and then what happens with a nominee? Here, here, here's my argument from the point of being a nominee. Um, if you, while you're a nominee, let's say the Hugo Awards nominations have been out for a week now, mm. you have a whole summer to celebrate being a nominee. Oh, yeah. Uh, you have one day to celebrate being a loser, <laughs> or, or, or a winner for that matter. Oh, look, uh, we've, well, let's just talk of the Hugos, right? I mean, and I, I do love the Hugos a great deal. Not not because, you know, I may win one or not, but I do love the Hugos uh, since it, I was a little kid. But the whole process, you know, you, you sit there, you know it's March or whatever it is, you get your magical email asking if you'll accept the nomination, and then you wait the two weeks before you can tell anybody, and then the nominations right. come out, and everybody comes along and says, "Congratulations, well done." And then you know that that goes on through you know through while the voting's happening secretly in the background, and then you get there at the convention, and you got to say, Worldcon more than any other convention I've been to is fantastic at making a Hugo nominee feel special. You get a special yes, little, you get special little pin, you get a special little uh, ribbon, you get do some special panel items. You get to go into that special reception before the hugos you get the pre-hugo um, reception you get special seats at the ceremony it's awesome well least- and i can also say that uh, from my experience at my university um that the hugos are of all the awards we have world fantasies nebulas whatever 
the Hugos are the one name that seems to be recognized widely mm -hmm. by people outside the science fiction field, the same way people recognize Edgar Awards when they yeah. are only occasional mystery. So the Hugo is the one thing that has currency uh, outside our community to some extent. Yeah. Um, I was getting lots of congratulations on... Uh, uh, on the Hugo Award nomination, once oh. I could finally tell people at the university, yeah. they, they were absolutely delighted. Yes. Um, when I was a finalist for a World Fantasy Award, they thought it was some kind of a sex thing. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, tell you what's really weird, though, and this is probably me being objectionable, so kick me in the shins if I'm wrong. It's funny being a multiple consecutive nominee. It's real. I mean, it's great. It's awesome. I'm so. I would imagine. But you know, you know what does happen when you say I'm nominated for the. I, I, I was. I have to say first up, I never feel this way. Every the four times I've been nominated now, each time has been a special delight and an honor, and I'm just thrilled. But I have to say, I say to people, I'm nominated for the Hugo, and they're kind of oh again. <laughs> and you go, ah, well, okay. the, 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 I that's true. I understand that. But but from your point of view, where you're where you've got a continuing profession, a continuing part of your life, oh, yeah. that you do well enough to win these nominations year after year, it means you're in the pool. Oh yeah, um, yes. That's what you were saying earlier about Ellen Dadlow. She, Ellen Dadlow has been at the center of the pool in terms of Hugo's World Fantasy oh, for World more Horror. than twenty years. Twenty years. Uh, and 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 being in that pool means that to some extent you've arrived. You're one of the people that will get Hugo nominations now. I may or I may not. I mean, you don't know how things will evolve over time, and I certainly don't presume anything about that. I think each time, and, and in fact, the fact that Ellen did not make it this year, despite she's you know she's got the shelf of silverware at home that she's got, and we are talking about someone who's won five Hugo's, nine World Fantasies, two Bram Stoker's, seven Locus's, a BS, a British Fantasy, two International Herald Guilds, a couple of Shirley Jackson's, and even a couple of Science Fiction Chronicle Reader Awards, along with just like billions of nominations. Yeah, she didn't make it. We yes. didn't even. Yeah, we, we, yeah, we. Speaking speaking of that, we didn't even mention that uh, nominations for the uh, uh, world uh, the World Horror Convention, the Horror Writers of America, the, the Shirley Jackson, uh, the Awards, Shirley yeah. Jackson Awards. All these nominations are becoming visible now. Yeah, well, that's part. Well, partly because everyone's getting better at talk at promoting them, and also because it's the season. We keep talking about it. it's the season, and as Alex, hi Alex from Galaxy, as Alex would say. It's really exciting. It's great. It's fun. So what are awards why are awards important? They're important because of that sense of fun, that sense of community that we get to have this dialogue. They are these conversation starters, maintainers. Um, and then they're that kind of recognition. I mean, I, I can tell you as well, you know, when I won the World Fantasy Award last year, apart from being utterly stunned and gobsmacked, you do feel, oh, wow vindicated that you sort of feel like all the work that you've put into it is worthwhile in a different way even though i mean as charles used to say the critical thing about awards as well uh and almost anybody i know who's won an award would say this is true you don't do it for the award you know you don't sit there going gosh i'd like to win a world fantasy award ergo i will do this and that will help me win one uh it's something that comes with having tried to do the work you, you're doing as best you can well, I think that's the thing. I, I, I think there are there may be people out there who think I'm going to angle to get on the Hugo Ballard or the World Fantasy Award, the BSFA Award, whatever it is that year. But I, I had exactly the reaction you did. Yeah. Um, when I, I, I got a, a BSFA Award for uh, uh, for the first book for for yeah. Bering, yeah, yeah. It was nominated for you. Well, once I got I had no no idea from a tiny publisher in England was going to be seen by anybody. So the first thing you realize is somebody's seen the damn book. That's exciting <laughs> right there. Mm -hmm. And secondly, 
some of them liked it. That's even more exciting. It and is. that's about all you need at that point. It's it is. Absolutely it is. Let me one, out. one of the points that uh, I was going to say, one of the points that Elizabeth Hand made on this uh, Locus Roundtable blog is that um, this field probably does award itself more than any other field. I mean, you think <laughs> mysteries, you think of, yeah. I know there are, there are hard-boiled awards, but you, mysteries, you think of Edgar's. Yep. Uh, romance writers of America have a lot of bizarre categories, but they're still basically all RWA awards. Sure. We have lots of different groups that give lots of different awards. Liz's point was that this may have begun uh, out of recognition that at least the most serious and ambitious writers in this field were never going to get listed for the Booker Prize. They were Maybe. never going to get listed Maybe. for the Pulitzer Prize. They were never good. Uh, so to some extent, we knew there was excellent work going on in this field, and we wanted to have some way to recognize it. Mm. And maybe we proliferated to a point beyond which most other genres would even recognize. But it doesn't take away from the enjoyment of being nominated. I oh, mean, no. I will be honest. I'd, I'd never heard of the Tin Duck Award until we got nominated for it. And then around the... I went around the office saying I'm nominated for the Tin Duck Award. It didn't do me a lot of good in terms of my colleagues, but I was I was thrilled. Can I can I tell you the first time I was nominated for Tin Duck? This is really bad. The first time I was nominated for Tin Duck, I told my uh, colleagues that I was nominated for the West Australian Science Fiction Achievement Award because I figured oh. they were just going to look at me like like your colleagues probably did. Uh, it's a very mm. playful title, and uh, you know, which is really great. But yes, there's that sort of thing. Yes, yeah, so I Hugo, because if I went around now, if you or I went around and said we're nominated for the Science Fiction Achievement Award, no one would recognize that. If you say I'm nominated for a Hugo, it really is one of the few terms that has bled out into the general yeah. culture. That means good science fiction. Oh, I know. One of the things I think that's funny is the, the, the Dittmar Awards. I mean, everybody's like quite happy to refer to the Dittmar Awards, which are also officially known as the Australian Science... At one point, actually, were officially the Australian Science Fiction and Fantasy Achievement, inverted commas, Dittmar Awards. But you know they're just named after this fan artist who was there when they were making them, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just like a thoroughly frivolous name, but you know, they, they carry on. I mean, and you're talking about the number of awards. I'm looking at Mark Kelly's frankly invaluable awards online mm-hmm. awards database, which you know I use all the time, particularly during this podcast. And there must be That's 40 cool. different sets of awards he's, he's tracking at least. So I mean, you know, there's, well, there's the pro- Prometheus pro- Awards. Yeah. There, the, the Prometheus Awards, the Sidewise Awards, the Canadian Awards. The uh, what's the Canadian award I'm thinking of? Aurora. Uh, sun, the, the Aurora Sunburst is the one I was thinking of. Okay. But, yeah. Yeah, that uh, one too. Uh, yeah. There, there, there are now the Parsec Awards. Yes, there uh, are. Podcasts. There are. Um, please and, nominate us now. <laughs> yes, please, everybody, everybody, go do that. Uh, and 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 there, but but there. So many of them, like this Parsec Awards, mm. as far as I know, are for genre-oriented podcasts. Yeah, They're yeah. still within the science fiction fantasy community. Yeah. Um, there are various awards within the horror community uh, that are, uh, I, again, uh, even though I don't read as much horror as I used yeah. to probably, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I certainly don't read it for review, once I see the, the, the nominations for the Stoker Awards, for example, and I'm, yeah. by the way, our friend and former podcast member, Peter Straub is up for a Stoker Award as, 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 as Elizabeth Hand is up for uh, a Hugo. Um, and I think, okay, if books that I know are good are on this list, maybe the books I don't know are ones I ought to look at. Yeah. And hey, Gary, 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 stop. Yes. Shut up. Okay. Listen, you know how I only pay half the attention to our podcast while we're doing this, right? Yes, of course. So, of course, guess what I just got in the email? 
I got an email. You just got you're you're reading your email while we're podcasting, Jonathan. Dude, I, you, I, I, dude I, you're not that interesting. <laughs> I'm devoting my attention to my microphone here, and you're reading your email. Okay, go ahead. Fine. Parsec nomination, the Cood Street Podcast. We're nominated. Congratulations, you've been nominated for a Parsec Award for the show and categories listed below. So I got to write back and say we accept the nomination. We do. Um, but can I just say to everybody out there who we just told to go nominate us, you don't have to do that now. Um, somebody else did, whoever let, it was. Let, 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 us, let us remind them of this. The Parsec Awards are really, really important. <laughs> I think we should pay attention to this. Can I also say that actually uh, our, our, our dear friends, Cake Bakers and All Round Nemeses, uh, Galactic Suburbia, are also nominated for the Parsec Award and are absolutely reasonably so too. Very worthy nominees, so... Yeah. I would have nominated them myself had I Me been. Me too. So okay, yes, so. there we all are. We're, congratulations, we're all... congratulations, Galactic Suburbia. And can I also say that I mean, before we sort of really big note ourselves and say how awesome we are, which we are, let's face it, um, yeah. there are like twenty nominees in some categories. I'm looking at the website. So um, yay, that's awesome. Uh, I also it's fine. It's it's fun. It, that's the other thing. I mean, it, our awards yeah, are it, they're all about fun. Okay, but we're, here, here's the thing right now to answer Elise's question. We're feeling really cool about an award that six months ago neither of us knew anything about. Yeah. Yeah, And exactly. it's, it's, it feels good. It does. It feels awesome. Uh, it I actually think... feels, feel, feels good for, for Galactic Suburbia as well. I'm, oh, I'm yes. Really... Oh, look, I feel inextricably in a very nice and sort of... I have this sibling relationship yes. with them, don't we? We do. I mean, I, well, siblings probably, but yeah, there's something. There's there's a what, what's the non-gender specific vernal or fraternal maternal kind of thing? Maybe it is I don't know. I don't because, know. Yeah. A familial response uh, relationship with them. I feel very warmly towards them, and that's why we reference each other all the time. I do too. And I, I just I think the only thing we have to be very conscious about, and they can they can address this as they will, is that I don't really want us to be categorized as the boys and girls Australian podcasts. <laughs> I don't think that's appropriate. Oh, uh, I think you're probably right. I think in fourth grade that might have been appropriate, but not yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, I th probably so. Still, nonetheless, wonderful to be nominated for for an award. I'm very, very pleased and happy. And uh, yeah, I think it's our fourth award for the podcast, which is absolutely extraordinarily weird, given that we just did this for fun and giggles. And I can't even imagine anybody listening to them, even though I know they do. Particularly when we ramble, Gary. Gary, we did it again. We're, Gary, I think we're rambling. Um, we're not. We're, 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 we were completely focused this time. We talked about awards. We answered Elisa's question. We talked about we Joe Russ. We, we talked about Joanna Russ. I mean, we zeroed in like lasers on this. <laughs> how, could, how could anybody possibly think we were rambling? I think we rambled in a very focused manner. That's exactly what I hope we were doing. <laughs> we're awful. We really are. And I never got yeah. around to putting to you the damn question I had to answer on that mega podcast, which is over on the writer and the critic feed, by the way, that we recorded that thing, which was, what are the five books you must read? Non-fiction books? Science fiction or fantasy, you know, genre books. Okay. Five genre books you must read. Okay. Oh, dear. And, and we've, we've been trained. Galactic Suburbia have trained us not to talk about must. No, we don't like the word must. No, we officially just do uh, it, so. But, but uh, there's, there's, I, I will make a categorical observation about all genre literature. Yeah. There is no yeah. book you must read. <laughs> if anybody tells you you must read a book, flee from them in terror because they have an agenda and probably have hidden weapons. Well, that's true. Even uh, though there's a must, I mean, there is, okay. I will always allow this caveat. You can put the must in a sentence and it makes sense. 
Yeah. If you want to understand the work of Robert Heinlein in the context of 1940s science fiction, you must read these books. I was going to say almost exactly the same words, which is probably the reason we get along. If you want to dot, 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 it, yes. it yeah. if you want to do this or that, then you should read this book. Exactly. Um, but not every people want to do the same thing. No. If you want to understand Heinlein's influence in today's world, you must read, what should we say, John Scalzi? Uh, but not everybody want to do, wants to do that. No. You know, if, if you want to understand feminist science fiction, of course you have to read uh, Joanna, Joanna Russ and, and James Tiptree and, and, and Ursula Le Guin. Yeah. Right, exactly. But if you don't want to do that, you don't have to read them. You don't have to want what other people want from these genres. That's one of the wonderful things about the genre. Exactly. I agree. I agree completely. That's why I told them they had to read the Science Fiction Hall of Fame if they wanted to understand uh, the golden age of science fiction. You know, the yes. Silverberg Anthology, because that to me is the short, it's, it's the shorter shortcut to getting a, a, a good overview idea of golden age SF. Yes, and, and then Helen had a go at me. She said, are there any women in that book? And, of course, I'm, like, busy making this stuff up off the top of my head the way you do on a panel. And, of course, there is one woman in the book. which Not is only a mother. Exactly, yes. Right? Which right. is, like, probably six stories too few, but still. And I said you had to read, um, I think it was The Dispossessed by Le Guin, if you wanted to understand a particular kind of science fiction. And you should read Citizen of the Galaxy, well, largely because that's the one that came into my head. Because, you know, the other thing mm -hmm. I said about the five books you have to read, Gary, it depends which mm -hmm. five minutes you ask me in. I would say the same thing. I, I, I think it uh, – but, but I would also uh, – to be asked a question like that, I would, I, would, I would have to turn the question back on the person asking the question because uh, you're absolutely right. The Science Fiction Hall of Fame was well, – let's – just say that that was a voted anthology. There was some the original yes, science fiction. There was there was some leeway given to Robert Silverberg, the editor, but essentially the much, yeah. uh, SFWA voted on classic stories. So if you want to understand the stories that shaped the writers that voted on those stories, forty years ago, uh, then that's a very useful anthology to have. Yeah. If you want to understand the fiction that shaped writers who began reading science fiction in 1980, probably not. You're two generations removed. Do you, ought you to read Neuromancer? If you want to understand that dimension of science fiction, absolutely. But not everybody wants to do that. No, no. You, you may not enjoy it. You know? And you may wish to pass your time reading one of the books that happens to be sitting in your room. And I, I read a actually very good epic fantasy novel this week because that's what I felt like reading. You know? Really? You opened wine, didn't you? Was that that I sound? Did. Or did, you, did you open a bottle of wine or did you just whack your microphone? I think I actually... Uh, well, it's embarrassing. I dropped my cork on my microphone. <laughs> you mean the answer the to both of those questions was yes? Oh, yes right. <laughs> <laughs> the wine uh, is almost gone, which probably means it's almost the end of the podcast. It is almost. Hey, I, I had a wicked thought, by the way. I know you're not supposed to say these things, but hey, look, we're not going to campaign for awards. And now that we've been, now they're up for four separate sets of awards this year because we're up for the the Tin Duck and the uh, Ditmar and the British Science Fiction Award, and now for the the Parsec Award. Uh, do you reckon podcasts would be eligible for special award non-professional at the World Fantasy Awards? Last year at the Neuro, well, one of the things that my jury did, yeah, and we all agreed that we were going to do this, was we did something that had never been done before. We uh, uh, introduced a filmmaker into special award. Yes, you did, Mr. Miyazaki. And uh, to, uh, Miyazaki, uh, and and the argument we made, which we all agreed on, and interestingly, nobody that I've talked to had really argued with us. Miyazaki has had a huge influence on the perception of fantasy. Yep. Yep. I mean, uh, uh, 
and, and filmmaker and so forth. So, yeah, uh, uh, things that advance the field yes. in a way that is worth recognizing should be open game for these nominees. Now, in the case of the world fantasy, that always comes down to what the judges think. But there's also the popular vote. So, yeah, a podcast is now at least as valid as a fanzine. Um, it's been obviously many times nominated now in fanzine categories, has won in a fanzine category at the Hugo's. So podcasts are simply a, um, a medium that uh, may not have existed in 1955 or 1960, but seems to me to be perfectly valid. And I'm not talking about that just in terms of being no. self-serving because no. uh, I think Starship Sofa arguably had um, a significant amount of content that warranted its winning the award when it won. Look, look, you know, absolutely. I mean, I know there's a lot of controversy within parts of fandom, and even in this this last, I think it was this last year, um, there's a interview that Tony Smith of Starship Sofa did with Jack Vance and Fred Pohl. I'd have to look at exactly when it was done, but I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure it was last year, right, rather than at the end of the year before. And that it's 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 extraordinary what that that particular piece that piece alone yes. justifies to my mind his Hugo nomination. So, you know, and since we're plugging things, I'm going to add a little plug a palooza here at the end of the podcast, Gary. So bear with me. Okay. First, of course, go to Beckon Publish website and get sightings because I edited it. So you know, buy it. The Absolutely. other thing is, is go to 12thplanetpress.com because over the weekend, Elisa launched a brand new series that started from a crazy idea that I had. And what I need what I need to do so I can sleep at night is I need our listeners to save 12th Planet Press from my crazy idea. Because what happened was we were drinking coffee one day and you'd swear it was alcohol with the idea. Mm -hmm. And Lisa was saying you know, there should be more collections of short stories by women published. There wasn't enough of them. Yes. And I went, well, that's a pretty reasonable idea. But, you know, as I like to do when I feel challenged, and for whatever reason I felt challenged, and, you know, put your money where your mouth is, um, publish more of them. And, so you go, and I said, you know what, you're 12th Planet Press. Do, and you've just done, so they've done a book called um, Horn, which was about eh, 80, 90 pages long, sold for a, a good, good price, $10 a book or whatever it was. And it was great. I said, why don't you do 12 and 12? Why don't you do 12 collections in a year, one a month, each by a woman, all containing original fiction, just the way the Night Visions anthologies used to be, where an author was allowed to do 30,000 words, anything, right? And she sort of uh -huh. looked at me, and I'm going, like everybody else when I say things, she's now going to run away screaming and not do anything. Sadly, she must have been putting something in her coffee, and she decided she'd do it. And so she launched 12, Planet, 12 Planets, right? Uh, which is the series of 12 original collections she's publishing now for practical reasons because she's more sensible and i she's in one every two months rather than one every month but well, that's that's sane at least i was going to say once a month is and, and i can tell you that up ahead probably in january of next year is a margot lanigan one and that will contain each each of these contains four original Excellent. stories so she's got a collection coming up and so everybody out there is listening and you world fantasy judges sit on the edge of your seats because it's gonna be four margot lanigan stories but she published two books at Worldcon, that was right. Worldcon, that's that's one con. She published uh, Nightsiders by Sue Isle, contains four original stories, and also published Love and Roman Punk by Tansy Rainer Roberts, multi-award winning Tan Tansy Rainer Roberts. And mm -hmm. I can tell you, Adrian Martini, and I shouldn't probably say this too much, raves about this book in Locus, the the the, the Tansy book. So uh, I would say to you, please go to Twelfth Planet Press, the website, buy these books. Save Elisa from her crazy friend, me. And if you like uh, the first two Nightsiders, because the, the first two Twelve Planets, the third one is by Lucy Sussex, which should be really good. 
Oh yeah, it really should be really good. And some other good people in the series, very good people. So go go forth and and, and buy these books, and uh, then then you'll. Are have, these are all Australian. They are. Twelve, no, okay. 12 Australian women, each writing four stories apiece uh, every second month. You can also subscribe to the whole series and get them for less. Uh, but what you're doing, and this is this, this is me plugging, 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 I admit it, mm. is you can save my conscience and let me sleep at night so I don't ruin Elisa's press by being mad and giving her crazy ideas. Please. I think it was an excellent idea, and it raises a question which we should spend part of a podcast on. Yeah. Um, and, and then that is when you talk about women's science fiction, which is a very appropriate thing to talk about in, yeah. in memory of Joanna Russ. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is a, there, there's a shift in the way anthologies have been done in those years. The early, uh, the classic early anthologies were Pamela Sargent's women of wonder sure. anthologies. Yeah. And the essential purpose of those anthologies, and I've never talked to Pamela Sargent about this, but I think from the anthologies was simply to demonstrate the fact that women were writing science fiction. They were not feminist anthologies in any particular yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. They were, look at these people. You, you people don't know about Zenner Henderson, and you shouldn't, <laughs> and so forth and so on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and early theme anthologies, this is characteristic of any anthology that deals with a particular set or orientation of writing. Yeah, yeah. I know in Galactic Suburbia, one of the things I wanted to respond to months ago, yeah. they had an interesting discussion about uh, anthologies of Jewish science fiction writers. Yes, yes. And again, Going back to Jack Dan's uh, classic anthologies, Wandering Stars, those anthologies basically, hey, you bet you didn't know these guys were Jewish. Some of them were on Jewish themes, most of them were kind of. But there's a difference between an anthology that says women or uh, Caribbean writers or, or Jews or African-American writers have written science fiction. The second generation of anthologies is to show what current writers are doing yes. uh, with their current sensibilities. That's a yeah. different kind of anthology. Yeah. You know. I mean, I, I, I am, I'm completely uh, in support of the idea that there should be anthologies that should bring Margaret St. Clair or Zena Henderson yeah, yeah. or Judith Merrill or Joanna Russ to the attention of a wider variety of people. But the current writers um, are the ones who I think are are, 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 are are the ones that need to be represented in current anthologies. Yeah. Yay! You know, I'm happy. Yay! So let's... I'll tell you why I'm happy. Because after 47 uh -huh. podcasts, it's your phone ringing and not mine. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and that was a call from England, I'm pretty sure. Probably uh, Farah. Cool. Probably Farah Mendelssohn. Probably, probably Farah Mendelssohn. Hi, Farah. I will, I, will, I will email her back. I'll be there in a minute. Okay, we've okay. been talking for an hour and a half, Gary. This is one of our longest podcasts. Oh, Gary, no, we haven't. No. Gary, I really think we're rambling. Maybe okay, it's time maybe. to wind it up. We, we rambled for 17 minutes in the middle of it. Okay, that, that's we'll all wind you it up. Okay, okay. Right. It's great talking to you, Gary. I will talk to you next time talk to you in a week i believe yes absolutely okay, okay. bye goodbye